Let's turn our Bibles to James chapter 1, James chapter 1, uh, verse 5, James chapter 1, verse 5. And as we're turning in our Bibles, I'm so thankful for actually when we have uh, the offertory. For me, it's a time of reflection, and then when you hear a familiar hymn, you're almost singing along uh, with the organist or pianist, and thank you, Megan, uh, for playing, and uh, we ought to be so much more thankful for everybody around us, uh, the organist and the pianist and the sound team um, that help make, help us come together to worship and to make much of Christ each and every Sunday morning and evening. Well, with our Bibles open to James, chapter 1, verse 5. Let us go to God's Word. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. The man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed in the same way. The rich will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, might be a kind of first fruits of all. He created. This is the Word of God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless our time studying your Word this morning and that you would be glorified in us because we are, we would be, we are satisfied in you. Oh, hear our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. James is very clear that you and I ought to ask God when we lack wisdom. In the midst of the trials and temptations that befall every single human being, probably every single day, we ought to ask God for wisdom. And it appears that in Scripture that asking of God is not just a a fleeting thing. It's not just a, a temporary thing. It seems to be this constancy 
whether rejoicing constantly or praying constantly or giving thanks in all circumstances, it appears to be one of lifestyle. This asking God for wisdom is one of lifestyle. Not just as Sundays and Wednesdays or church gatherings, but something that we're doing all the time. Because the trials and temptations of life come to us all the time. They're just always there, aren't they? You have the arrows of the evil one being fired. Arrows of our own heart firing at itself. This constant struggle that James is very aware of, not naive to it in any way. And he knows that when we pray, don't doubt. Why ought we not to doubt? Because the God we are praying to is good. And he gives good and perfect gifts, as we see later, right, in verse 17. That's why we ought not to doubt, because he does give good gifts to his children. It's who God is. So he wants to have us, as we pray, to have confidence in God. Confidence in God. The reality for many of us, we struggle with that. Don't we? We do. Thus, we need to pray. Even when you doubt, would James just want you, well, you're doubting, so just don't pray. Is that what he's teaching? No, I think he would want you to work through that doubt. And the only way for you and I to work through doubt is to wrestle with God. As, as, I love being in Jacob's example, the J-Bock wrestling with God. The only way for us to overcome our doubts is to wrestle with God himself. Wrestle with his word and pray. Take up the Psalms and wrestle with what is being said and pray. There are many doubters in the Psalms. The psalmists are struggling. They're doubting God's goodness. What should you do? Well, the Bible gives a clear example. Pray. So that you will believe. And in fact, if you're doing that, you're already believing, aren't you? Your doubt really is a pretty fragile doubt if you keep wrestling with God in prayer. It, it's not a very firm doubt. Oh, no. That's a fragile doubt. And that's what we want our doubts to be. We want them to be fragile. But if you're not praying with God, if you're not wrestling with God, if you're not living with God in prayer, if you're not taking up his word, you can see why doubt might creep, why, why doubt might creep into the soul ever so subtly. So pray, because God's desire for us as we run the heavenly race is that we would persevere, that we would persevere. And there's preciousness in perseverance, isn't there? And perseverance is simply this, it's the pursuit of Christ. Perseverance, you could give it a nice label, but in the end, it's as the saint pursues Christ to the end, that he is more magnificent than anything else in our life to the very, very, very end of the road. Because it's really about Christ, isn't it? Our, our faith is in, in Christ, and through Christ you see the Father, but you're fixated on that. And it's precious because God is precious. Christ is precious. His death for sinners is precious. 
His resurrection from the dead is precious because if you are united to Him, you too will rise from the dead. That's precious because all the wealth in your bank accounts will turn into nothing. It's all turning into sand anyhow. But in Christ, you have one that conquers death, material decay, never to be. That's precious, isn't it? That's precious. And there is a problem, isn't there, in our world with preciousness or where we treasure. We live in a society. We breathe its air. It says what really matters is money. It's stuff. It's things. It's material possessions. It's material kingdoms. It's degrees. It's reputations. And we can continue on. It's not just greenbacks or how many zeros you have in your account, but we treasure many things on this earth. So there's a temptation for both the poor and the rich. As Proverbs, and this is, name is Augur, he's in, if you go to the chapter 30 of the Proverbs, you will find Augur. And Augur is, speaks these words in Proverbs 30, verse 8. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. Two temptations for the rich and the poor as reflected by Augur. What does he want to be? Content. Augur wants to be content. Are you content? Are you content in your circumstance? Because that's what Augur wants. Just give me my daily bread. Give me what I need. I don't want poverty, and I don't want riches. I don't want to forget you because I'm so self-assured in my wealth. Nor do I want to steal because I'm so poor. I just want my daily bread. Content. Is our society a content society? Is your home a content home? What does your conversation say about what you treasure? What do you talk about the most? Because clearly what we talk about the most is often what we treasure the most. Not always, but sometimes, usually. So what do you treasure most? What makes your heart most content? Now, James addresses this issue of poverty and riches in a very unique way. I, I love how he begins in verse 9, brothers, or brother, in humble circumstances, or poor, ought to take pride. You ought to take pride in his high position. Don't you love that, how he speaks there? Those who are poor, you ought to take pride in your exalted position. Now, why might that be? Why would James be talking like that? Why could the poor, those who are despised by the world, those who are looked down upon as not worth listening to in the ancient world, why would they have a high position? Why ought they to take pride? Well, if you look at chapter 2, verse 5, you see, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen, God chosen, 
those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Why is it so good for those who are rich in faith? Because you're going to inherit all things with Jesus. Ah, that's a pretty good thing, isn't it? So rejoice in your high position if you're poor. If you're struggling that, remember, you are actually wondrously rich. We don't say that to ourselves very often. I'm so wondrously rich in Jesus. Maybe some of you do. Maybe some of you do. But that's what he's saying, isn't he? You're rich. You're so rich in Christ. You've been grafted into him. And to him who can never wither, who can never fade, who can never die. That is your riches. Paul says these glorious words in the midst of suffering and beatings and persecutions. And, and they, well, you name it. He, he lists it all. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though everything is giving way. Although all the material comforts of this life are gone, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory or weight of glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Even though all the material comforts are gone. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him who conquered sin and death. Fix your eyes on him who has made you rich beyond your wildest imagination. But it's the riches that have nothing to do with the, this world. Fix your gaze upon him. And Jesus said similar words, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up your, for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That, as Proverbs 4.23 says, the wellspring of life. So where are you storing up your treasures? Because it makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? In fact, it makes all the difference in the world. Where are you storing up your treasures? Because every treasure stored up in this life is gone. It decays. It's eaten by the moths. Or thieves come in and steal. And we can treasure things that are really good. Really good things we treasure. Jesus is very clear. We're called to store up our treasures in heaven. Which brings us to the rich guy. He really gets slammed in this text, doesn't he? He's not treated very nicely. If you're a rich guy, which is like pretty much every single American that has gathered here this morning, um, but let's say you're a rich guy in the ancient world. I mean, these guys get thrown down because there was a conflict happening. There's some kind of abuse happening in the church that James is writing to of the rich abusing the poor. But again, those words for the rich are, you should take pride in your low position. Isn't that interesting? The words. You should take pride that you're low. Now, why would that be something to take pride in? 
Didn't Jesus say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven? Both of those two are not exactly high. They're both made low. And here Jesus is saying to the rich that they ought to take pride in their low position. And then he says, because basically, everything you have is one day going to be gone, just like the flowers of the field in the, in the summertime. They're beautiful in the spring in the, in the Mediterranean climate, but by the end of the summer, there's almost nothing left. That's going to be you. And while you're working and busy with this life and busy with your treasures and building up bigger barns, you're dead. It's all gone. Like the poor, you too will die. You too will be like the chaff that the wind blows away, never to be remembered anymore. So take pride in your low position. That you are a sinner saved by grace. That's quite lowly, isn't it? I mean, everything that I have in Christ Jesus, I do not deserve. Do you? Do you deserve his election? Do you deserve his blood? Do you deserve the stripes that were on his back, the nail-scarred hands, the crown of thorns, the mockery of his own people, the abandonment of his friends, and the betrayal of one of his best friends? And then his resurrection and ascension and his constant intercession for you. All of these are works of grace, aren't they? That ought to make us low because we know who we are. We're sinners. So remember, O oh rich, you're sinners saved by grace. So it should never be in this church that James is writing to or any other church that the rich in any way would abuse the poor. In fact, it would be the very opposite. And of course, throughout the history of the church, we have actually seen the very opposite to God's glory. But the reality is it can be abused, and it has been abused again and again and again and again. And so he addresses the two, and he is really addressing my own heart and yours. In fact, you know, trials that, of course, come to both the rich and the poor, I believe, help rip riches from our hearts so as to store up our treasures in heaven. There's something about the trials of, this, of life, the sufferings of life that are really, really good to get low, aren't they? To humble us, to see this perspective that those trials that God brings to those who are rich in the world actually are wondrously good for your own soul because they remind you or they're able to help you reorient your thinking because you realize all this is going to be gone anyhow. Suffering has a way of doing that, right? Diagnosis that, oh, if you don't have treatment right now, you're going to die. Or a heart attack that you were one, like you were seconds away from death and now you're alive. It has a wonderful way of waking you up, doesn't it? Those trials help put things in perspective. That's why they are good, aren't they? Or could you say good and perfect gifts? Since this whole section of the text is built based on trials that the saints are experiencing, and these are good and perfect gifts. They are, aren't they? They are. And that's why that verse, verse 12, says, "Blessed, the blessedness of perseverance, which says, I want to read it again, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised for those who love him. It's a, it's a beautiful text. It's a beautiful text. The blessedness of perseverance. There's two things that I think are, are being mentioned here. Perseverance proves faith genuine, doesn't it? 
When you go through trials and tribulations, and even when you are assaulted by the temptations which emanate from your own heart or from the evil one or from the world around you, when you persevere, right, I think it, what it does is it proves your faith as genuine, as real, as not just, just a vapor that is here and then gone. And listen to what, exactly what 1 Peter chapter 1, I think we read it last two weeks ago. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come. These have come. So that, here's the reason, your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed at the resurrection of the dead. So that your faith, your trust in Jesus, which is more valuable than all the money in this universe, is proved genuine. Because you continue on. You don't give way. You continue to fall, follow Jesus even when you hit the ground. When you crawl a little ways in the dust, you get up and you follow the Lord Jesus. The second of the blessedness of perseverance is perseverance assures us as we pursue Christ, assures us of the eternal victor's crown. There's a crown of life, isn't there, for those who persevere through trials and temptations. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says this, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. That wreath that you see the victors would have, those laurel wreaths upon their head, they would not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. An eternal crown. So the call to persevere, the call to strict training, as the Apostle Paul is instructing the church at Corinth, and as I believe James is doing as well, run the race following Christ. Don't give up. Persevere. Because what awaits you is so glorious. A crown that will never fade. And actually, at the end of, end of Paul's life, as he's writing Timothy, he says these words, now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who, long, who have longed for his appearing. The crown of life is for those who long for his appearing. And why do they long for his appearing? Because they long for him. The Christian life is about Christ. It's about longing for him, wanting him, groaning inwardly so that we would pursue him. Because in the end, in heaven, what is the light in the middle of the city? Christ is. He's that light. He's that word made flesh. That lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and who loves us and gave his life for us. So perseverance. How blessed it is through every trial. Maybe you're having one of those weeks that you're needing to persevere. You're, you're mostly in the dust and you're, you've hit the ground a few times and stumbled all over the place, whether that's in your relationships, in your words, at your work, wherever it might be. The Lord Jesus Christ is saying to you, get up, come and follow. You've been saved by grace. I love you. A crown is awaiting you. 
But now is the time for war. Now is the time for war. Victory will come. Victory will come later. Well, looking at the source of temptation, I think it's important to, well, to go back to verse 13 because there's a problem there. These guys are somehow saying, God is tempting me. So we have the blame game happening also at the church that James is writing to in verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. They're obviously talking about that. God, that God has promised to those who love... It, well, sorry, but... but <clears throat> For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. Now, obviously, this is one of the lamest excuses for sin, blaming God. When did that begin, the blaming of God? Can someone tell me? Come on. In the garden. That's right. The dude named Adam Blame God and his wife. That's the reason he fell into temptation. It's you, you gave me this woman. It's you, God, and the woman. Sound familiar? Sort of the blame game. And then what did she say? The devil made me do it, right? That's, that was her excuse. But there's nowhere in the text, he, yeah, he's the tempter. He, he's lying about what God's word has done, but it's she that's actually partaking, and it's he that is actually partaking. This is just an ugly, lame excuse, whether in the garden or here in the church of James. But what's the real source of temptation? What does James say in verse 14? Ah, oh, by his own evil desires. Your evil heart's the problem. Man, sounds like somebody we know. Jesus. Remember Jesus in Mark chapter 7? Mark chapter 7, who said these words? From within one man's heart come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. It appears that the enemy is within the citadel of our own heart. Yes, there's a tempter. I understand the tempter, the evil one is there. Yes, we live in a world full of temptations, the world. But there's also your flesh and your heart that has fallen. And as Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? The enemy is within. And I like this because it, it, it prevents us from blaming others, right, and making excuses for our sin. It might be you are from a family that has a horrible, you grew up in a horrible situation and there's understanding. He's not talking about that we cannot be understanding and compassionate to those who sin. But we need to be honest. Sin emanates from our hearts. It's I'm responsible for my sin. My wife doesn't make me sin. I sin. God does not tempt me to sin. I tempt myself to sin. Isn't that what James is saying? You do it yourself, like the collar. Right? You are dragged away and enticed, self-dragging. You're responsible. In a world of victims, this is refreshing, isn't it? Open up the doors, get the nice breeze of God's word going through the house, blowing out the chaff and the dust right out the back door. It's refreshing in a world where everybody's a victim. And we all make excuses. 
but I enticed my own heart. So what is the harvest of temptation then? How does this work? Well, I just want to look at this text real briefly. It says in verse 15, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Right? It's not a good end, right? We, we don't like that. It's like, whoa! It gives root to sin. So what does this look like? Well, let's go to a, a man who said he made a covenant with his eyes not to lust for a woman. His name was Job, a great sufferer who went through many trials, right, and tribulations. But he said, I made a covenant with my eyes in order that I might not lust or sin against a woman. So where does it first begin? This, this cycle that leads to death. Well, it begins with my heart itself, right, the, my evil heart. And, and my, so those are my evil desires. And those evil desires then place myself in a place in which I can then sin, right? And then not only do I lust, but I then partake. So it goes another step. And then it appears, the language is also interesting. It's birth language. Did you hear that? It's birth language. Like the new birth, but it's the opposite. The birth of sin that leads to death. The birth that we have in Christ leads to eternal life. That's what's being played against each other in verse 18 and verse 15. But as that person then continues down that path of lust, and it couldn't be any lust. Lust is for anything, right? Whatever that lust might be, its ultimate outcome is death. It's death. So what is James talking about there? Death. What kind of death? As we continue down the road of our own evil heart, which then is, entices itself and then play, puts itself in a place in which it can then lust for whatever it is lusting for. And again, I use that word now broadly. And then you continue in that lust of the eyes and ultimately of the heart. What does he mean then by death? I think Romans chapter 6 helps us. Romans chapter 6 helps us discern what he means. When you were slaves to sin, Paul writes, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things resulted in death. So they were slaves to sin. That means before they came to faith in Jesus Christ, they were already dead in their sins and trespasses, as he says earlier. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. So there's the result. For the wages of sin is death, spiritually, physically, and eternally. Now those, are, those are the three categories within Christendom. Spiritually, physically, and eternally, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, James is giving full responsibility of all of us for our own sin patterns. But why is he writing this? What is he trying to do in the church? He's calling people back from sin, isn't he? He's calling them back to this work of perseverance, of following Christ instead of pursuing their lusts, whatever those lusts may be, in order that they might inherit that crown of life. We come back to that central text that actually permeates the whole entire message. 
but he, has, he, he senses something in, the, in his hearers. Did you notice that in verse 16? He senses something. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. That's fascinating because a lot of commentators don't know what that means exactly. What does he mean? Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. What's going on? What are they being deceived by? That doesn't seem to be clear. Because the next verse is really interesting. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Is it, is it that they're doubting? Are they doubting that God is good? That's my question. Because if they're already blaming God is tempting me, they are really probably saying that God is not good. So is he saying that do not be deceived? Because you are saying in your actions that God is not good. But we do know that God is good, that every good and perfect gift comes from above, comes from God. You can see that in Psalm 136, which I think really hits at some of this text as well, where the psalmist writes, Who made the great lights? His love endures forever, that refrain. The sun to govern the day, his love endures forever. The moon and the stars to govern the night, his love endures forever. And so I think it's more than that, it's challenging God's love. Does God's love endure forever? J James is saying yes. Even in trials, yes. In sufferings, yes. God's love endures in your life forever. And all of creation declares it. All of creation declares it. That's why the hymn we'll sing, it says, Great is thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. This is coming directly from verse 17. It's actually where Great is thy faithfulness comes from this very verse in James. We I know time is short. I'm going to finish here. You know, even trials are God's good and perfect gifts to reflect more deeply on God's goodness. I have reflected on God's goodness far more times in, in trials and in sufferings than I ever did in prosperity. Ever. It's not even close. In, in the trials of suffering, we find the gold of God's goodness among the rocks. Among the rocks, we find the gold of God's goodness. And there's a man that found the gold of God's goodness again and again in the trials of his life. His name was George Mueller. George Mueller, at the death of his wife, preached the funeral sermon, which is not easy. She had died of a fever. And this is what he said. This is the outline of his sermon. The Lord was good and did good in giving her to me. The Lord was good and did good in, oh, long leaving her to me. And he lastly said, the Lord was good and did good in taking her from me. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, even trials. His wife was already grafted into Christ. She already had the good of, of eternal gold in her soul. 
But even in his suffering, he could even say in his, the death of his wife, God was still good because his goodness doesn't change. His goodness doesn't change. We need to hear that. I need to hear that. He's always good, no matter my circumstances. He never changes. Well, brothers, in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, the Word of God says this, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. James in verse 8 says, you and I were chosen by God. He gave us birth like a mother gives birth to a child. That's the language, actually. Through the Word of God, and we are the first fruits. You are the first fruits of a reality that is to come. He's speaking that every Christian who is born of the Spirit of God is the first fruits of a kingdom that is coming when Christ returns. A little taste of what is to come. I know we might not think very much of ourselves, but James is trying to encourage the saints that you are the first fruits of what is to come, the resurrection and the redemption of your bodies, that first fruit. What an encouraging thing to say for those who are in the midst of trials and tribulations and temptations. Brothers and sisters, you are the first fruits of God in the world. And those first fruits are going to lead to a far great, more greater fruitfulness in the return of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for Christ. And we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would help us persevere in our pursuit of following Jesus in the power of the spirit. Oh, help us, God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.